Greetings, friends, gentle listeners, and welcome to episode 40. 40. Episode 40 of the Spicer Speaking Podcast. Coming to you from sun-drenched, idyllic, beautiful, peak season conditions. The Palm Desert, California, right here in the bosom of the Coachella Valley. Some call it the Palm Springs area. It's fine by me. I'm your host, Judd Spicer, four-time award-winning writer, associate member of the Golf Writers Association of America, former ESPN radio co-host, 11.4 handicap. Yeah, it's gone down. A decimal from the last time I joined you, which was last week. Finally got uh, the dust off the clubs in recent days. Went out. Working on that inverse loop, talked to me by Paul Busey, hitting the ball a little bit better. It's actually hitting it pretty well due to this week's guests. Pardon me, it's a singular guest. He's a contributing writer to Lynx Magazine, Colorado Avid Golfer, McKellar Magazine, and Points Beyond. He's also a Brit, the great Tony Deere fellow scribe, ink-stained wretch, and golf guru. Tony was on that recent trip to northern New Mexico in Black Mesa that I told you about. I think we rode together two times, and he finally told me, I don't think I'm going to try the British accent. Hey, mate. Hey, Judd. Hey, mate. Now, that sucked. But he did tell me, he's like, you got to move the ball back in your stance a little bit. And I did, and I have, and it's working. Readily look forward to visiting with Tony on this week's episode. Speaking of writing, in this week's tea sheet segment, I'm going to share a little poetry with you. Yeah, it's a little golf poem that I want to share this week. Of course, all this is brought to you by a trio of excellent sponsors. That list starts weekly with Perform Better at performbetter.com. All your functional training equipment, all your workout gear, expert seminars, Kettlebell, dumbbell, barbell, all the bells, stretchy bands, bouncy balls, all your training equipment you can find it, and more at performbetter.com. Desert Willow Golf Resort, one of the primo public plays, not just in Southern California, friends, not just in the state of California, but the entire West Coast, home to 36 holes, the Firecliff and Mountain View courses, respectively. Dr. Michael Herdson, Dana Fry with John Cook Consult. Those are your architects. Plan is 18 holes right now. Aforementioned Mountain View in the overseed season. I want to say it opens back up on Christmas Day. How what a day that would be. Run downstairs, rip open some presents, got your stockings on, and then run out to Desert Willow? Well, if you don't do that in the interim, Go check out the Firecliff course or what's going on at the Palm Desert Golf Academy. Opening up all manner of classes, lessons, tutelage. You can find that all on DesertWillow.com. Internationally renowned golf photography from the sibling tandem of John and Janine Hennebury. Find their vast portfolio of international courses, domestic courses. You can find it all at the Hennebrys, H-E-N-E-B-R-Y-S dot com. Johnny Hennebry is back in the desert. Going to get him on the show soon. Find out what he's been doing. 
this summer season, what courses he's been shooting, and I know he's got some new photography gear that he's been playing with as well. I think some advanced new drone photography. Friends, before we get to this week's chat with Tony Deer, just a couple quick hitters. This weekend past, Purple Pride had to break the maiden trip to SoFi Stadium, watch the Vikings beat the L.A. Chargers 27-20. to It was a good game. Kind of thought they would win that. That was a game that the Vikings should probably lose. They were three-point underdogs, which means that they were going to win. And they did win in pretty solid fashion. Missing their top three defensive players, according to my calculations, they played some phenomenal defense, held Justin Herbert, to under 200 yards. I think they held Austin Eckler to fewer than 50 yards on the ground. And they didn't screw it up in the end. You know, the Vikings got five losses this year by a combined 18 points. After that win, still in the mix. SoFi Stadium, as impressive as advertised. A little tough to navigate. Not going to lie to you. A little tricky to get around there. Good thing I had a Vaisakajuia uh, with me. I call him the dog, the great Ryan Malone. One of my bestest, one of my besties, one of the greatest friends a guy could ask for. Yeah, he took care of the tickets, very generous guy, and I let him navigate. It took us a little while to find our seats at SoFi Stadium, but once we did, ooh, prime viewing and a real pleasure to see the purple. We were not alone, by the way, wearing that purple and gold. I, I kid you not, I estimate about 70, 70% of those in attendance, of the sold-out crowd to be sure, were indeed Vikings fans. This probably touched upon either on previous radio show, of which I was a part, probably a time or two on this program as well. I mean, for all the L.A. choices and options, sports and entertainment, the L.A. Chargers, I think they're, they're down, the, down the ladder, at least a few rungs. One other note for you I wanted to share. Earlier this week, you can check this out on the Spicer Speaking Facebook page, by the way. shot some video of the Coachella Valley Firebirds storefront on Tony El Paseo, right here in Palm Desert, California. Not that Apple needs any advertising, certainly for me, but it is right across from the Apple store, basically the intersection of San Pablo and El Paseo. And there were a lot of people there. Yeah, there were some fellow media members and so forth, but there were a lot of just fans, people in their in their uh, newly acquired Firebird merchandise, shirts, hats, and they were in there buying fistfuls more. So that store is now open. You can get all your Coachella Valley Firebirds gear right there in the intersection of El Paseo and San Pablo. With that, let's get to the chat with Tony. All right, dudes. As preface, it's a one-guest town on episode 40 of the Spicer Speaking Podcast. Good thing that we have high-quality guest, fellow scribe, fellow ink-stained wretch. He's known as the purveyor of the pronoun. He's an asset to the adjective, supplicant to the semicolon, a nuisance to the noun. His vocation is the verb, and he's British. Coming to us today from... Bellingham, Washington, by way of Banger and Mash. It's our friend Tony Deer. Tony, what's up, man? How long have you been working on that? That was uh, that was 
exceptional. I think um, I, I think I've been working on it since the plane ride back from northern New Mexico when I saw you last back. Uh, I guess last month. Can you send it to me or, or the text? Because that was that was that was amazing. Um, I will not send it to you because then it will force you to go back and actually listen to episode 40 of the Spicer Speaking podcast, which included in this interview, does also have some golf poetry. And I mentioned that, Tony, because you you told me candidly that while you'll be happy to share this episode and, and do those other things I asked you to do, that you probably won't listen to it. And you said that in your writing endeavors, which I should mention include Lynx Magazine, Colorado Avid Golfer, McKellar Magazine, Points Beyond. You don't actually even read your own work anymore. Is that is that accurate? That's entirely accurate. Yeah, there's, there's um, I'll tell you why uh, in a moment. But but there's um, you know, yeah, once it, I mean. At the end of the day, once something comes out, it's different now with um with the the internet, I suppose, where you can change it uh, once it's been published. But 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 you know, back in the day, I mean, once it's once you've sent it, and once it's been printed and published, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And you know, as a if, if you want it changed, or if there's something something in there that you don't like, there's there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and that. I mean, as, you know, as a, as a young 20, 20, young 20 something writer, you. Um, not anymore, though. Not. That was no, some time that, ago. This was a long time ago. <laughs> OK. Um, you know, you, 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 you sweat, you pour sweat and blood in, into everything you write. And then um, a sub editor who, you know, comes along and has 10 minutes to. Um, review it, rewrite it, you know, make it look as if he's um, important and, uh, you know, uh, doing his job makes a change. And it's something you've been thinking about for days or weeks even. Um, and it's, uh, and it, and it absolutely gets your goat. <laughs> it, it just, it used to roll me up so badly and I'm sure it does. I'm sure it did any writer. Um, and so I, I, I don't think I made a, uh, a, um, a definite decision, but I think over time I decided with myself, look, it's not worth it. It's not worth the anguish that you put yourself through um, because of what uh, you know, a, a sub-editor has done. Tony, before I follow up on that, I guess a little bit more broadly, and you kind of intimated it there, like myself, you and I, we talked about this before. We've both been doing this for a long time. I think I've been in the writer's chair for 23 years now. How long have you been doing it as a pro? Uh, 1993 was my first printed uh, article. So what's that? So 28 okay. years. Yeah. Been doing it for a good long spell. And to go back to what you just said about the editorial process, I mean, I, personally see it both ways and sometimes i too either neglect or probably decline to go back to the final printed published product because of that very fear that something is going to be changed of which i would not approve and it's it's not my words or some case singular it's not my particular word it's a word that's not my voice 
that I would have never used and I don't want to see it attached to my byline. So there are certain publications, I won't out them in this episode of the Spicer Speaking Podcast, that I never go back to read the finished product because I know a certain editor is always going to make changes. Absolutely. For, for you, it's it sounds like it's part pride, maybe part pain, perhaps part frustration. That part of the writing process as it moves into a published final product. All of that, all of those. Yeah, I mean, as I said before, what you know, if if you've spent so much time and researched something so heavily, and and really gotten deep into the subject and written about it for someone who is I'll, I'll tell you the story of, of I, th- I think what what um how it came about how I felt about this came about I, I was um when I was probably 23 24 I was a, a junior uh, staff writer on a magazine called four in in England um and I remember succinctly um one day it was lunchtime and I was the only one, I, I, had a, I had some work to do. So I was the only one left in the office. Everyone else had gone down the pub and I was the only one left in the office. And one of my colleagues' um, phones rang. So I answered it just to say, you know, he's not here. You know, can I take a message? Um, and it turned out to be Harper Collins, um, you know, the book, the, the book publisher. Uh-huh. And... And instead of taking a, a message, the, the person I spoke with um, had a message for me. He said, said I, I don't know who you are, but um, we are desperate for a writer. You know, the HarperCollins used to do these, I, I don't know if they still do, but they do these little pocket gems, little tiny little books that you can slip in your back pocket about every subject you can think of. Um, and the writer said, um, we need a writer desperately. We have about four weeks to go before um, before we need to publish the the, the pop, uh, pocket gem golf. Um, do you know anything about golf? I said yes. I write about it uh, for a magazine called Fourth, the same magazine as as my colleague. He says, "Well, can you do it?" I said, "You want you want me to write a book in four in four weeks about golf?" I said, "Yeah." I said. Uh, I was, I think I was 23. So I, I had no idea of, you know, no experience in the publishing industry apart from this magazine that I work for. You know, the book publishing industry had no experience of it whatsoever. So I, I said, yeah, not knowing what it would uh, curtail. Um, and, I, and I wrote it. And, you know, if you, if you spend, I basically took holiday, vacation time, wrote it, you know, up, up at seven every day, finish it seven eight every night 12 hours a day seven days a week for four weeks and wrote this book and just got i um just so heavily involved in the subjects and so um immersed in everything you're doing and then about so i sent it send the document to the to the editor um and about and i don't hear from him or anyone at the company not this is not harvard Collins. they have sub subcontracted to a another company and a London company to actually produce the book. And I don't hear from them for six weeks or six, uh, six weeks, I think. And all of a sudden I'm in a bookshop one day in, um, in Cambridge, I think it was. And I see it, I see it on the shelf 
and my heart sinks because because I know something about editing and you know how that process works you know working for the magazine so I'm thinking this is very odd that um, they haven't contacted me in in you know since I sent the document in and I go over to the shelf pick it up look through it and you know I, I'm just I'm just crestfallen I'm asking oh. I'm so I, I I bought the copy because they didn't send me any so I bought the copy and studied it later that day and discovered 120. I still remember that figure. Uh, I've 120 alterations to the text, to the um, to the photographs, the images, the captions, everything. Um, that that was different from what I sent. And that still had your name on it, of course. And this is this is this is 25 years ago. More, uh, yeah, 25 years ago, and um, and it still rankles me. It was you know it was the first real example of this happening first real occurrence and i you know i didn't know anything about it but but my editor at the magazine he he had some experience in the book publishing world and said well um you should sue them because you know this has got your name written all over it and uh, it's it's not a good look because I, I mean the worst the one thing that um sticks in my mind the most for some reason is they had flipped a, a photograph of um Faldo, Faldo was obviously you know the the, the biggest uh, name in the game, especially in England at the time. So to flip a photograph of him and have him as a left-hander <laughs> was um quite jarring. And he so he suggested I sue, and you know I had no idea how to go about that. So uh, I made a couple of inquiries, got absolutely nowhere, and it's still out there. Let's take it from the days of yore to modern day and the writing world. Uh, again, this is something you, you and I have been, we should, listeners should know on, I think, upwards of three, maybe even four media trips, golf trips uh, together over the years. And as a reiteration, we were together uh, recently in northern New Mexico for the, uh, the Black Mesa trip. And I think you and I have touched upon this a few times, the changing appetite for not just the reader, but for the publisher or editor for the written word doesn't just pertain to golf articles for many different styles of articles. Uh, you've contributed to almost every issue of the excellent uh, McKellar magazine, the, uh, the journal that uh, I've been in once, I'll be in the next issue. But places and pages like that are few and far between these days where there's an opportunity to really write, to do a narrative, to tell a story. I'm fortunate that I have a couple others that I really feel let me do that. STGA's four magazine certainly uh, included on that on that list. But what do you see as we're nearing 2022 for the the appetite for the types of stories? You don't have you can specify the outlets if you want, but even just broadly speaking, Tony, what do you think editors are looking for? And readers are looking for more so now than maybe what we were asked to write a couple decades ago. Um, obviously, the internet and and uh, the way people's lives are going, the way society is going, means we we need it shorter, we need it snappier, we need bite sized. Um, and the, you know, the, uh, I don't care for it. Mm. I don't like it. Um, you know, because I, 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 
I like to read great writing. Um, and actually, now I think about it, it, it kind of reminds me of, um, I was watching a show last night with my daughter called the, um, the, uh, the It's Baking uh, from Britain, baking show, great British baking show or something. Okay. I don't watch any TV. I, do, I just watch it with my daughter occasionally and she, she's into this baking show at the moment. And there was, um, there was, a, there was a contestant from, uh, from, from, where she, from Liverpool um, and apparently she was a total mess. She, you know, she, 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 she did, she did some quite good stuff, which meant that she progressed quite far on the show, but, but her reputation was that she was a bit of a mess and all of her, all of her, all of her, um, cakes and biscuits and whatnot, they, they looked a bit of a mess. Um, and that was gonna, that was gonna cause her to lose the ne- in the next show, I mean, the, the judges' um, patience with her had was about to be, come to an end, and uh, she was about to be thrown off. Or, you know, that that's what I read from, from what my daughter was telling me. Anyway, so the, the um, one of the, the, the last episode was um, they had to make what I believe I, I think it was called a celebration cake, a cake to celebrate some some wonderful moment. Um, and hers was brilliant. Hers was absolutely brilliant. Um, and the judges were kind of taken away by it. Um, but the problem was all of her competitors, fellow competitors, all of their cakes were absolutely brilliant as well. Okay. So she couldn't stand out. You know, her cake didn't stand out because, because everyone else's was really good as well. Um, and that, that kind of, what well, you know, the question got me thinking along those lines because these days there's so much, there's so much qu- high quality writing. There's so there's so many good. I mean, I, if I if I list names, I, I I'll leave some out. So I mean, is that fair? I don't know. I mean, maybe the publications. You know, there's so many there's so many great publications: Golf Magazine, Golf Digest, uh, McKellar, Golfers Journal. Um, Golf Channel has some great writers. Um, you know, where it's easy to find really, really good quality golf writing these days. Um, and I think when I was growing up, certainly, um, and before that, um, there was so little of it. Mm. You know, we, we know of writers from, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, well, up to the 80s, um, because there were so few of them. You know, we know about Herbert Warren Wind, who was you know, long before that, certainly. We know about Bernard Darwin. We know about Warren, Warren Wind. We know about Pat Ward Thomas, um, mm. Leonard Crawley, um, Peter Dobriner. Um, because, you know, I mean, that, that, there's five names from a span of, I don't know, 40 years. Yeah. 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. Um these days, you know, you could you could name ten great, really good writers. You know, mm-hmm. you know, just from today, you, you'll read ten great articles today from ten different writers. Um, and the um, oh, this this also makes me think of something. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote an article for Links about um that celebrated bland holes bland holes 
bland holes, B-L-A-N-D, bland mundane holes. Now, now this admittedly took um, quite a while to, you know, the idea to, um, to, to persuade the editors to go for it because you, you don't really want bland on the front, on your front <laughs> cover or, you know, or, or anywhere, you know, if, you, if you're trying to sweeten readers, you don't really have bland in the title. Um, but I thought that, you know, the beauty of bland was a was a um a legitimate article i thought it was i thought it was i thought it would work um because you know that going back to the golden ages tom simpson especially you know he would say um he actually wanted to to design a bad hole or a, a mundane hole if you ask designers you know that know him these days that they kind of have trouble actually specifying one <laughs> but um but he he simpson said himself that he wanted to to um design a bad hole for variety's sake um and so i find with with writers these days um great writers and it's and with golf uh, it, it, it relates very well with golf courses because golf courses these days you don't want to have bland holes you know you I mean, with social media and the way you know golf course golf courses are marketed you don't want anything to do with bland um and so writers i feel you know as i said that they're kind of joined writers don't want bland sentences or or anything you know to um mm. you know the, the article has to be short sweet and punchy and and get you straight away and I feel, I feel like if you read, if you go back and read Warren Wind and, and Crawley and Ward Thomas uh, and Darwin to an extent, but he, he was, he was exceptional. Um, you find that, you know, you, you, you read it and, and it's not, it's not like on oh, another great example is David Owen, uh, he, you know, New Yorker, Golf Digest. Right. He, um, you know, you, you might not read every sentence to go, wow, amazing sentence, amazing sentence, incredible, sent, you know, amazing turn of phrase there in that sentence or whatever. You know, you, you'll just enjoy the flow of the narrative and you'll, you'll, just, you'll just be um, sucked in, but, but you, won't, you, won't, you won't specify any, any sentence or any turn of phrase or any word in particular. And then bang, you know, the, the last paragraph, the last line, the last sentence, the last word even would just suddenly bring the whole thing together so beautifully uh, i think david owen was probably the, the best of those that i've ever read um and it just leaves you with a sense of satisfaction and delight that you've read this read this article friends you're tuning in to episode 40 of the spicer speaking podcast speaking of great golf writers it's my pleasure to have one join this week. It's Tony Deer, of course, can read or have seen his work in Lynx Magazine, Colorado Avid Golfer, McKellar Magazine, and Points Beyond. You can also follow him on Twitter at Tony J. Deer. Not sure what the J stands for. Maybe we'll find out. Tony has uh, intimated a few times there, your META, your sweet spot, as I see it, correct me if I'm wrong, is writing about golf architecture. Uh, you're very well educated. Uh, you've got a particularly keen eye for uh, designers, generations, 
of design styles. Would you agree with that? That's your uh, sweet spot in golf writing. And if so, why does that interest you so much? Um, that's how it's that's how it's panned out. Certainly, it's John, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not it's not something that I decided. 25, 30 years ago, that I would definitely, uh, that's what I definitely wanted to write about. But that, but that, um, that's how it's, that's how it's worked. I mean, I suppose because, I mean, it is, it is by far and away the, 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 the aspects of the game that I'm more interested in, uh, most interested in. Um, you know, I used to be a teaching pro, so I, I wrote um, instruction. Um, and from that equipment, I was a senior equipment editor on a magazine in, in Britain. So I, I, I still write equipment for Colorado over golfer. Um, so I'm still kind of, um, I suppose, stepped into, you know, have, have fingers and pies in, in, in most aspects of the game. But I think the one that has interested me most and the one that I found my sweetest spot in is, is architecture. As a, uh, a follow-up from that, I think it begs asking, and we'll come out and make it a two-part question, who or whom are two architects, golf architects, whose work you particularly enjoy, and who are, or whom are two whose work you think is pretty crummy? That, that, that question is like, you, you know when, when it, it, it's I, I think I asked the question once and I got the 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 response that I expected um, and that I've seen a hundred times since but I've never asked since and that's you know when when you ask a a, a, um, a designer what their favorite course yeah. is and yeah. they always say it's yeah. like asking me who my favorite yes. children my yes. favorite kid is I've got so that I, exact I, yeah. answer you get exactly the same answer. I, I, I've never, I, 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 as I said, I, I might have um, asked it once. Um, who are my two favorite designers? Uh, if I take one from the golden age and one from now, um, bearing in mind there are an awful lot more that I respect and whose work I admire, um, I'll say from the golden age cult because... Um, Colt. I played a lot of cult courses as a teenager um, and as a young 20-something. Uh, when I, when I, I carried for my dad, my dad played a lot of, um, of you know, the great courses around London and England um, as a society member and, and as, a, as a golf club member. Um, and so I, I, I carried for him a lot. Uh, and, uh, and while they were, you know, the society was eating and drinking after, you know, in the clubhouse afterwards, I'd nip out and play the golf course. So I played a lot of great cult courses that way. Um, and that was, you know, before I had any, any knowledge of, you know, who Harry Colt was or, or, or um, why it was such a great course. Um, as I've gotten older and as I've read so much more, it's become clear why they're so good. I, of course, admittedly, you know, they had great sites. Uh, um, but then, I mean, and, you know, Sunningdale, Bar the Berkshire, uh, West Byfleet, West Hill, Werpleston, Woking, you know, they're, they're wonderful sandy sites, you know, with, with not too much elevation change, but some elevation change, wonderful um, foliage, um, just great, perfect for golf. 
But as I've gotten older um, and I've seen bad designs, I've seen, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of golf courses. So, I, you know, I know what's good and what's bad. It's, it's obviously not enough to have a great site. Um, you know, if you were given, if you were given the exact same site that Harry Colt was given, or, or actually Willie Park had already, you know, been given Sindale, but Harry Colt came along a little later to, to amend it. Um, I think that most great architects would tell you in some respect, if not the greatest, that it is dependent on the land. There has to be a canvas of some sort to work with from the beginning. All right, that, now let, let me more more contemporary that uh, architect yeah. that you really enjoy or, or okay. respect. Okay, uh, sorry, um, when my phone went off there, just, I just wanted to say, um, you know, if, okay. if 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 an architect today was given exactly the same site that Colt was given at Sunningdale or or Willie Park had been given, you know, what would they do? Or how would it look? Obviously, you know. You, you um when you grow up you you have this strange idea that the the, the routing is kind of already in place i mean that you know that, that that's what anyone everyone would do and so it's just the actual the individual holes that might look different from one designer to another but of course you know when, when you actually think about it and and you stop being so uh blind to it you realize that how the how the holes are um configured and where they appear and why they appear there is by far and away the the most important part of being an architect and Colt did it brilliantly um so the the journey that Sunningdale old uh, I'll, I'll use Sunningdale old as a, as a and Sunningdale new the journeys that both courses take you on are, are just they're just supreme. They're, they're just absolutely wonderful. They give you such a range of shots, uphill, downhill, um, in the trees, out of the trees. Um, and, and, and it's just, it's just exquisitely done and making perfect use of the land um, to give you shots that you'll, you know, you'll remember forever. And, and you, and you think, well, you know, a really bad architect, what, you know, had they been fortunate, they would never have been given a style like that, but, you know, had they been given a style like that, what, are they, what would they have done? And they would never have come out with a course or, you know, very unlikely to have come out with a course as engaging and as, and as um, time honored, you know, one that has, has remained great for a hundred years right. as Sunningdale or, or St. George's Hill. But the um the contemporary architect that I'm that I'm most fond of, and again, you know, there are plenty that I'm very fond of, but the one I'm most fond of is probably David Kidd, because we do get on very well. We're you know we we're, we're not we're not best of friends or anything, but we you know we 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 get on very well, and and I I do consider him a friend. Um, we um, he's he's uh. He's been very good to me. You know, he, he invited me on a on a trip to Nicaragua about, I, I suppose it must have been six or seven years ago to see a course that he was uh, designing down there. Um, he actually flew me in his in his plane, a little little uh, propeller plane out very to nice. uh, Gabble Sands last last year to see the the um, the short course. 
um, we just got on great. And I find he, he's hilarious. You know, he's, he's uh, if anyone, if you ever get the chance, you know, um, just, just someone who, who can, you know, add dinner or yeah, anywhere can just take over the table and not in an arrogant, listen to me way, but in a, in a hilarious, <laughs> um, just, gu- just gushing with stories. Um, just such an interesting guy and, and brilliant golf courses. And of course, uh, Bannon Dunes, uh, uh, among them Gamble Sands that you mentioned, uh, done a lot of international work, uh, as well. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll close it. We'll close out the chat with this one. Then Tony, uh, one or two whose work you think is maybe a little sloppy or overwrought. Really? If you we want, do- if you, if we don't have, I mean, is it going to jeopardize a future job or interview? I mean, I'll just put, I'll put it this way, man. I mean, I think I've played enough Greg Norman courses to know that basically most of his work at some stage of his career has had a redesign and generally way the hell too hard for the mid handicap golfer. I realize that those are pretty basic uh, reactions. We're not getting super esoteric or technical with some of Greg Norman's design problems. Um, but, but for me, when I, go on a trip or go uh, I've written about one of his courses. I always have a grain of skepticism before teeing up on that first hole. Uh, if you want, you can choose somebody that's dead. If that makes you feel better. Um, <laughs> I, I say this, I, this is completely honest, but um, even though I have seen, you know, an awful lot of golf courses, I, I don't make a point of seeing bad ones. So, um, <laughs> so uh there aren't really sort of golf courses today that, you know, I've gone to and thought, oh, that was awful. That, that, that designer just does awful work wherever he goes. Um, so I will, I will harken back to one that's passed. Um, and it's, the, and it's the one that, you know, you'd expect me to, to bring up. Um, there, there was a, a certain designer from the, well, I mean, he, he started working the, 30s with um stanley thompson um no yeah so, so now you know exactly who it is um and you know work, work you know he, 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 there's a lot to be said for his longevity and and his productivity no doubt about it that, that's incredible and you know growing up in in my 20s not 30s i was probably done with it by then <laughs> But twenties, you know, before you know anything about it, um, I enjoyed his courses. You know, uh, they were fine. Um, but the older you get, and the more you read up, and the more people you speak with, um, you realise that this was this was the advent of um, of uh, production golf courses, okay. you know, conveyor belt golf courses with. Um, with with very little thought and imagination and creativity gone into them, and that and, that, and that's one of the beauties of um, great golf course architecture these days. You know, people like Doak and Hans and Kidd and Devries and Clayton and Reb and Johns and and again, I'm 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 blanking on other names at the moment, and they'll come to me the second we finish. But they're but they're 
their design build or you know they're, they're very close to the to the build and they they sweat blood and tears into their work and it shows and it's beautiful and it's um it's their eternal credit whereas you know the, the conveyor belt um designers jones to begin with um and then <laughs> yeah the name came out eventually i was gonna say i was and, gonna give a few hints and then um song. and then nicholas and fazio after that um <laughs> again you know and that's not to say they haven't done great courses because they have um and i'm not going to be snobby and say that jan nicholas has never built a great golf course because he has um same with fazio uh and same with jones but um Jones, uh, wh- when I, I, th- I think, I think the first time that I, as I said, I, I, I played a lot of Jones or a handful of Jones courses in my twenties without really understanding, you know, anything about golf course architecture. As I get into my thirties, uh, as I'm really starting to get into the subject and, and decide what is a good course, good, excuse me, good golf course and what isn't what's interesting, what's enjoyable and what isn't. Um, one of the first courses I play is, is a course in, uh, <laughs> is a course in Colorado. Um, and it's an old Donald Ross course. And Jones came along, I, I, I don't know exactly when, but he built another course and he changed nine of the Ross holes. <laughs> Yeah. And the um, the difference between the two halves is is stark. It is jarring, and it is um, it's disappointing. Um, the Ross holes, you know, the, the, everyone has just got a little something about it. It just sticks in the memory. It's just a little interesting little quirk, or you know, it throws up an interesting shot or an interest interesting question. And the Jones holds are entirely predictable and look exactly the same. And, you know, they, they just look like someone has winged it and, and, um, <laughs> and, 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 and sent a, uh, a, 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 a quickly drawn sketch to, to the construction crew and said, right, build this. And it's, oh. um, and that's, you know, that, that's why Jones, um, has such a bad reputation and uh, oh, it's such bad that's not fair um, but you know what why his reputation among among architecture aficionados isn't great um, you know let, let's see let's see a bigger picture um, he was around for 50 60 years say, longevity he built a lot of really good courses some absolute horrors but um, some good ones um, and there's there's a lot to be said for that. Oh, but this nice. particular course in uh, in in Colorado is 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 uh, I was I was shocked. A mix of uh, uh, candor and prudence in that response, Tony. Um, so great to visit with you again, man. Always a pleasure going on the trips together. I will look forward to the next fam so we can continue this discussion about golf my golf swing, my golf ball placement in relation to my stance, which I opened the show with right. that you helped me How with. How did so that work, much. by the way? Is that, is that working well? Still working on it. <clears throat> okay. It's a process. As you okay. know, it's a process. 
friends, check out his work again. Lynx Magazine, Colorado Avid Golfer, McKellar Magazine, Points Beyond. Follow him on Twitter at Tony J. Deer. Thank you so much for your time, my friend. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. A great pleasure. All right, dudes. Enjoy that chat with the great Tony Deer. Not just a fine guy, but a fine writer at that. Really respect his work as a scribe. I'm a tough critic. Wouldn't say that about everybody. Appreciate Tony's time. As prefaced in this week's tea sheet segment, the tea sheet, of course, is brought to you by Desert Willow Golf Resort. High season is not just nigh, it's here. Idyllic conditions. Start playing a lot more golf. Oftentimes, playing golf with folks that just get paired up with. Go out as a twosome. Get paired up with two more. People cross paths. Might never see them again. A little ode to that in this week's tea sheet segment. I hope you enjoy this poem. It's entitled Play With Me. Don't dig into the... uh, Anything euphemistic, by the way. Again, this is a golf poem. Play with me. Bring a ball and a club and a peg or a tee. Bring your bro or your sis or your nephew or niece. Bring your heart on your sleeve or a golf soul at peace. Play with me. I don't care if you're old or you're young or you're prime. I don't care if you're lax or you're watching the time. I don't care if you smile or furrow or frown. I don't care if you're black or you're white or you're brown. Play with me. Stroll on the grass or roll on a chair. Dress to the nines or don't wash your hair. Come with four clubs or twenty to spare. On the scorecard of company, I just really don't care. All I want, all I need, all I care, all I see is for you and your swing to just come play with me. Give me your shot your game, and your best. The blades of Bermuda will work out the rest. The season is nigh, this is our round. It may be but once, but these hours we've found, fellow player, I may never see you again, so play with me now, for tomorrow's round ends. Hope to see you out here, friends. Enjoying the Coachella Valley and our bounty of golf courses in the peak season. Appreciate your time, your interest, your ears. Thank you for tuning in to episode 40 of the Spicer Speaking Podcast. Again, appreciate the time of golf writer Tony Deer. This program would not be possible without a trio of excellent sponsors. That list starts weekly with Perform Better, PerformBetter.com, Desert Willow Golf Resort. Get your lessons, get your golf knowledge, get your tee times at DesertWillow.com. An internationally renowned golf photography from John and Janine Hennebury. Hey, you own a golf course, you run a golf course, you're a head super, you're a GM, you're a head pro. Need some fresh imagery of your ground? Need to update your website? Need some great images to sell to your membership? Call on the Hennebury's. They're experts. They're old hands and old pros. They're going to get the job done for you right again h-e-n-e-b-r-y-s dot com no show next week it is a holiday I wish a bountiful Thanksgiving to you and yours 
Again, thank you so much for tuning in to the Spicer Speaking Podcast. Be safe out there and be well.